0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who examines the Republican Party's embrace of extremism and violence that endangers U.S. democracy. Kathy Kelly, lifelong nonviolence activist who talks about the dire situation in Afghanistan where millions of civilians now face widespread famine after the nation's assets were frozen following the Taliban takeover in August. And Mike Elk, senior labor reporter and founder of paydayreport.com, who discusses how the sacrifice of essential workers during the pandemic led to mass resignations and a record number of labor strikes. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: American journalist Danny Fenster was released from prison in Myanmar six months after he was arrested at the international airport. Just days earlier, he had been sentenced to 11 years in prison for his reporting and faced additional charges of sedition and terrorism. Fenster was released on humanitarian grounds to former U.S. diplomat Bill Richardson, who earlier had met with coup leader General Min Ong Line. Myanmar's military coup leaders, who overthrew the incoming elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi, attacked the media outlet Myanmar Now, in which Fenster had earlier worked before becoming managing editor for the magazine Frontier Myanmar. Fenster, aged 37, was convicted of dispensing information harmful to the military. Over 120 journalists have been arrested since the February coup, and 47 journalists remain in jail. Fenster is the only foreign journalist in Myanmar to be convicted of serious offenses since the coup. Human Rights Watch called his conviction a travesty of justice by a kangaroo court operating at the beck and call of the Myanmar military junta. In late October, Uzbekistan's president, Shavkat Murzyvoyev coasted to a re-election victory with over 80 percent of the vote. However, the election was criticized by observers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who asserted that there was no meaningful engagement among the candidates or with voters, while candidates refrained from challenging or criticizing the incumbent. Mirzivoyev won praise from Western governments after the 2016 death of longtime Uzbek strongman Islam Karamov. The new president has reduced forced labor in the nation's cotton fields, closed the notorious prison camp, and opened up the economy through currency reforms. But despite economic reforms and the lifting of some restrictions on religious practices in the majority Muslim country, political reforms and legalizing opposition parties has stalled. Although the president has declared himself open to opposition, in practice his government has proved resistant to registering parties critical of the status quo. According to a U.S. government commission, 2,200 inmates, or 10% of the prison population, remain in jail on religious and political-based charges. The state of Delaware is viewed by many as one of America's most significant tax havens. Towers from large banks and financial institutions dot the skyline in Wilmington, the state's largest city. Delaware is also the invisible home base for two-thirds of Fortune 500 companies, which have legal domiciles and post office boxes and corporate filings in state offices. According to the American Prospect, Delaware's largest industry is a legal and political ecosystem designed to grease the wheels for business dealings in what some call an incorporation industry. As of 2020, there were over 1.6 million incorporated companies in Delaware with a quarter million new businesses registered in the past year alone. In fact, there are more businesses than people in the state. Companies are drawn to Delaware because the state makes incorporation really simple and cheap, with limited liability company LLCs the most popular offering. LLCs can be obtained for a flat fee of $300, which exempts business owners from legal responsibility, with all revenue taxed as a partnership at the individual tax rate rather than a corporate rate. Although making any changes to Delaware's tax avoidance system will be very difficult, the national winds are shifting away from the state's pro-corporate governance model, with the public increasingly expressing a strong desire for corporations to pay their fair share. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: The Kenosha, Wisconsin jury's decision to acquit 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse on all charges related to his shooting to death two racial justice protesters and severely wounding a third man during demonstrations following the August 2020 police shooting of a 29-year-old black man, Jacob Blake, sent shockwaves across the U.S. White supremacist and far-right militia groups saw the verdict as a victory and celebrated Rittenhouse as a hero. So, too, did Republican Congressional Representatives Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gaetz, and Paul Gosar, who offered the job of Congressional intern to Rittenhouse, a teenager who has no other qualifications for the job other than murdering two social justice activists. The Republican Party and their allies' embrace of violence is now a staple of their members' rhetoric and action. Dozens of GOP politicians lionized the insurrectionists, who on January 6th assaulted the U.S. Capitol to overturn an election, killing five people. And after the House voted to censure Representative Gosar for posting an anime video depicting himself killing Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and attacking President Biden, Republican leaders failed to condemn his behavior. Locally, right wing death threats are now common, targeting public health, education, and election officials. A recent poll found that 30% of Republicans believe that they may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. Your reporter spoke with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, who discusses her views on the rise of armed white supremacist groups in the U.S., the embrace of extremism and violence within the Republican Party, and the threat to America's democracy.
2: So what we're seeing generally speaking in the U.S. with the Republicans, is a legitimation of violence as a normal way of doing politics, as a way of getting what you want in politics. And of course, this had been developing, and January 6th was a uh, huge—it broke all these taboos. It was a huge advance. And so you also see, unsurprisingly, a parallel kind of lawless masculinity, And that's because the the leader uh, sets the tone, and Donald Trump being a a sexual assaulter, a serial one, as well as corrupt, he kind of embodies this linkage between them. So we're seeing... You know, people who feel empowered, that's very important. They feel they can do things with impunity. So Paul Gosar um, and masculinity has become kind of a—you'll its it, you'll see it's going to become more and more of a talking point for Republicans, and this is why.
0: What's been the response of the country to what we've seen unfold? I, I will just ask you about the media. Is what we're experiencing right now being normalized by the media in terms of, well, these are— These are just politicians barking at one another, and I can't help but feel that what we're seeing unfold is a lot more dangerous than what our media is saying about it and its commentary about what's happening.
2: Yes, I think you're right, and it's been one of the things that's motivated all of my work since 2016 because I had the skill set from being a historian of fascism and autocracy To recognize what was going on very early, but also to recognize that a lot of the population and the media didn't have any experience with autocracy. In fact, the first people who started to write to me when I started saying Trump was an authoritarian in 2016-17 were people who had uh, fled dictatorships, either communist ones or military juntas in Latin America. They knew, they saw what was going on. But the media, it did not have the skills in large part to see it in this frame. And although Trump started ta- attacking the media and making them kind of enemy of the state, enemy of the people, that's just why they engaged in this kind of both sidesism because they didn't realize that the GOP was exiting democracy. And once you have a bipartisan system in which one party is outside of democracy— you can't continue with your old model of media coverage. And it's taken them a long time to get there, where they start using the word authoritarian, which they do now. If you hear that word all the time. But those of us who work on this for some time and we know the history of these things, we've been talking about that for years.
0: When we look at the acquittal of, on all charges of Kyle Rittenhouse, who murdered two people and injured a, a third person— in the Black Lives Matter protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, what message is that sending to the rest of the country? There's a lot of concern out there among activists, people who are protesting for social justice, that they too may be in the crosshairs of these right-wing extremists who maybe now feel they have a green light to carry weapons to protests and to oppose those who they disagree with on major issues and use their guns to enforce that opposition.
2: Yeah, and unfortunately for us in America, the wild card of uh, the American situation is guns, is hundreds of millions of guns in private hands, in citizens being allowed to have arsenals, military-grade weapons, because in other countries where you have uh, 21st century-style autocracies, and what I mean by that is... In the old days, you know, you had this complete shutdown of freedoms. You still have this in China and North Korea. But nowadays, uh, people come to power by elections, and then they manipulate elections to stay there. And they have a veneer of, you know, they have multi-party system. It's just all fixed. But that's how things work today. So we are headed towards something like that with all the things the GOP are doing. And and here you have gerrymandering and all the other things, voter suppression, but you also have threat. So guns are essential to that threat. And so, for example, um, I've been tracking laws uh, in Texas and other places that expand the powers of poll watchers. And these are volunteers. And in some states like Texas, they can be armed with long guns. Right. And the new laws say that these poll watchers could be close enough to, quote, see and hear what the voter is doing. And if that person's armed, the you can see the potential for intimidation is huge. It, so it's not just they're trying to have, not have people vote. They're trying to make voting very threatening, and guns are essential to that. So it becomes more like a, a military junta with paramilitaries there. And so we have to shift the frame in which we see all of this. And guns are the key to the
0: intimidation. That was Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of the book Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Find links to her recent articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The United Nations World Food Program and other international aid agencies have issued warnings of widespread famine in Afghanistan that could kill tens of thousands in this impoverished country in the coming months. According to the World Health Organization, an estimated 3.2 million Afghan children are expected to suffer from acute malnutrition by the end of this year, with one million of them at risk of dying as temperatures drop this winter. The crisis in Afghanistan's cities is a direct result of international economic sanctions against the Taliban regime that took over the country in August, as well as the flight of donor agencies. When the Taliban took control of the country, foreign aid accounted for 75 percent of government spending and the country was dependent on regular physical shipments of U.S. dollars to fund its trade deficit. After Kabul fell to the Taliban, the U.S. canceled all-dollar shipments and froze $9.5 billion of Afghanistan's central bank assets. European banks quickly followed suit. Without financial aid, the government has been unable to pay teachers and other public employees. A lack of foreign currency has also made it all but impossible for Afghanistan to import critical food and medical supplies. Your reporter spoke with Kathy Kelly, a lifelong nonviolence activist and co-coordinator of the Ban the Killer Drones campaign, who talks about the dire situation in Afghanistan, where millions of civilians now face starvation and economic collapse drought, and after four decades of war, what might be the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. 24 million people are facing
3: acute hunger, and that's an extreme form of starvation. Uh, Mr. Beasley, who heads the World Food Programme, has called it the worst humanitarian crisis on Earth. And um, the World Food Programme, about a month after the fall of Kabul, Assessed that only one in 20 Afghan households had enough to eat. And right now, 47% of the Afghans are at crisis or emergency levels of food insecurity. And the projection is that that will rise to 55%. So the harsh winter weather is coming. People, many people, if they're that poor, they can't possibly afford wood. To you know, put logs inside a they call it a Bukhari, a little stove. And uh, I know many people had only heavy blankets to help them get through the harsh winter. But people can't always even afford that, much less warm clothing. And the healthcare system was already near collapse. And right now, because of the frozen assets, healthcare workers and teachers aren't being paid. You know, the United States has frozen. $10 billion in Afghanistan's assets and $449 million in International Monetary Fund emergency reserves. And I, I think that's cruel because the people who will be hit by that and, you know, maybe lethally hit are women and children, 75% of Afghanistan's population. I think the Taliban, they certainly weren't planning on this. It's disastrous for them. But they can make money from charging taxes on every vehicle that crosses any border of Afghanistan. They can make money on the poppy crop. And so I I don't think this is really going to hit the Taliban so badly. But the women and girls are at particular risk. I mean, if a woman heads a household and there's no other income earner and she's lost her job and she doesn't have access to cash or any other assistance, as many single women don't, well, what is she to do? Fortunately, some U.N. agencies are starting to use the hawala uh, means of moving money. It's illegal in the United States to use it, but, for instance, Australia can use it. And they're trying to set up an escrow account and get some money into the households of teachers and healthcare workers in the form of paychecks. But, uh, you know, some say, so this is going to be going back to the 90s, right? Well, no, it's a whole lot worse. Because things were bad in the 90s, but now Afghanistan has a much bigger population. And the the neighboring countries, along with Europe, are much more resistant to migrants coming across their borders.
0: What is the U.S. government policy vis-a-vis the funds that have been frozen? I imagine that the U.S. government rationale for this is that when the Taliban ruled Afghanistan in the past, before the war began in 2001... They conducted themselves in a very abusive and brutal way, especially towards women. There were a lot of policies that the Taliban employed when they ran the country that violated human rights up and down the roster. Tell us a little bit about what you think U.S. policy should be when it comes to these funds. How, How can these funds be released and not overtly support what the Taliban represent?
3: Well, I think it's good news that there are still, I believe, 38 United Nations agencies working in Afghanistan. And, I mean, I can understand that the Taliban are on the terrorist list. And once you're designated as a foreign terrorist organization, it takes a long time for that designation to be lifted. But um, sometimes uh, the U.S. can move a lot faster. And it's my hope that that's what they'll do in this instance, because uh, it's just not fair for one of the richest countries in the world to be sitting on $10 billion of Afghanistan's assets while Afghans are nearing famine. It's just not right. So I think it's good that the UN set up this escrow account. And I hope people will really press the government of the United States to push money in that direction and try to get money as quickly as possible to the neediest people, but I think all of the countries that were ever involved in invading and occupying Afghanistan should get together, acknowledge their wrongful behavior, their cruel behavior, and then pay reparations in the form of helping that country get back on its feet and
0: make reparations in the form of dismantling our own military systems. That was Kathy Kelly, co-founder of Voices for Creative Nonviolence and co-coordinator of the Ban the Killer Drones campaign. Learn more about the dire situation in Afghanistan and U.S. sanctions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The coronavirus pandemic has caused major disruptions of everyday life in the U.S. and globally in many different ways. One effect has been the shakeup in the labor force, with millions of workers choosing to leave their jobs and being in no hurry to take a new one. Another effect is the massive pandemic strike wave that has washed over the country. Mike Elk is the senior labor reporter and founder of PaydayReport.com. His outlet was the first to recognize the U.S. strike wave, and he's compiled a database of more than 1,600 walkouts since March 2020. His reporting found that as many as 100,000 workers have participated in strikes, including fast food workers, hospital staff, and manufacturing workers. Elk believes that this wave of labor strikes is different from past worker uprisings, because, he says, instead of calling upon unions... And going on traditional strikes, many non-union workers organized on social media and simply walked out. Between the lines, Melinda too, who spoke with Elk about the scope of this year's labor actions and the reasons behind them. He begins by discussing the importance of the term essential workers.
4: And one out of every three people were essential workers, and it was like in one of those kind of dystopian you know novels where you read about the you know there's some sort of lottery and who draws the pick. And so a lot of folks were essential workers and they risked their lives for not much money. They're traumatized. And so I think that's a really big part of what's occurring right now is so many folks during the pandemic, they realize their worth. They realize that, oh, yeah, you know, I'm considered an essential worker. The government calls me an essential worker. I mean, they had to keep the doors open. So you need folks, you need custodians. If you're working in a big hospital, you need custodians. You need administrative staff, need security guards, you need all kind of people people that they were only paying, you know, 14, 15 bucks an hour. And those folks coming in during the pandemic and doing their jobs, as did grocery workers, as did retail workers, as did a host of other workers. The two biggest periods of union organizing in American history is right after the Civil War and right after World War II. Because after every period of collective pain that we've ever expelled as Americans, we realized that as Americans, there's something that we fought for. But after every big war... There's a sense that we sacrifice because we felt a deep belief in this country. We felt a deep belief in that things could change in this country. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, essential workers were made to feel that they were patriotic heroes. And folks who had to keep working during that period, remember that. And you can't erase that feeling from anybody anytime soon. And so, you know, we're looking at a labor market where, you know, things are, are tightening, you know, because of the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic has reordered the economy. Uh, first off, we saw something like approximately, you know, 2 million uh, workers retired early during the pandemic. And then a bunch of workers because of unemployment left the workforce, they don't wanna go back quickly because 60% of workers were making more on unemployment as a result of the Bernie benefits. And I say Bernie benefits in that Bernie Sanders pushed through uh, these enhanced unemployment benefits which were three times what they were. And so for a lot of folks, we're looking around like, why do I want to risk my life in retail when I can go get unemployment? I don't disagree. Why would you want to risk your life for $8 an hour? And so there was this period where there was a lot of social insurance and that helped. And then on top of that, during the pandemic, I mean, there was 2 million people that retired early. There was uh, another million and a half that they left the workforce to care for people and their families. And then there was 3 million people who realized during the pandemic, hey, you know what? I've been making crappy money, and we've been paying so much money for childcare that, yeah, you know what? Our family might take a little bit of a hit. We'll probably make though about ten thousand dollars a year less if I just stay at home. And so that's a big part of it. And now with the Biden benefits, that's even not as bad as a hit because you know now with the Biden benefits around uh, a childcare, a lot of folks are getting you know three 000, four thousand dollars a year. So, you know, if you're already looking at childcare bills that were $20,000, $30,000 a year in some cities, and you're thinking, okay, you know what, I might not work anymore, and we're going to make about $8,000 less a year. And so we've seen all these dynamics occurring. And so right now, there's a huge shortage, and workers know it. And they also know that when they walk off and they post signs on doors and retail establishments, uh, that these signs, they go viral. In a lot of these, uh, whenever you have retail worker walk-offs, we track 1600, what's become popular on TikTok, on Instagram, and other places is that workers will leave, and everybody will quit in the whole retail establishment, and then somebody will take a marker, they'll write up a sign, and saying, this is why we quit, and they'll post it on the door. I think these are changing in a very big way, the same way they changed after World War II, the same way they changed after the Civil War.
3: Mike Elk, I wanted to ask you about the wave of teacher strikes that started in West Virginia, then went to Oklahoma, Arizona, and other places that occurred before the pandemic. Now, because of COVID, teachers are incredibly stressed and risking their health, on top of often still earning low pay. Have there been many teacher strikes during the pandemic? Because I don't remember hearing about them like I did that earlier wave of strikes.
4: A ton of them. First off, I just saw a statistic yesterday. There's 600,000 less education workers in the workforce this year than at the beginning of the pandemic because of how scary it was. And we're seeing teacher strikes. We're seeing bus driver strikes all over. I mean, school bus driving has become an occupation where you make 12, 13 bucks an hour and you work a couple hours a day. It used to be a big unionized job. And so we're seeing bus driver strikes all over. You know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. And a lot of people in this country are thankful for what essential workers did. And I think we all need to sit around at Thanksgiving and think about how many people we all know in our own families, our own lives, that risked their lives to work during the pandemic, because there's a lot of them. And we should be thankful for essential workers every day.
0: That was Mike Elk, senior labor reporter and founder of PaydayReport.com. Learn more about the reporting on this year's wave of labor strikes by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org you've been listening to between the lines a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities the nation and the world between the lines is produced and distributed by squeaky wheel productions if you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News magazine, and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on REC-FM in Riverton, Maryland, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, Progressive Voices Network in Atlanta, Georgia, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Nikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manza, Bob Nixon... Melinda Tuhus and Jeff Yates for between the lines I'm Scott Harris